You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. In 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in a case known as Loyola and explained the limits of the freedom of religion. They explained that Canadian law allows for religious pluralism, but the nation will only ultimately tolerate competing religious beliefs to the extent that they do not conflict, quote, with core national values. This, of course, is no new demand. More than 2,000 years ago, the Emperor of Rome, Augustus Caesar, declared that a golden age of humanity had dawned with his reign. It was required that all members of the Roman Empire affirm in solidarity, Caesar is Lord. As his propaganda would assert, the providence which has ordered the whole of our lives, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life, by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, as it were, a savior for us all, and those who come after us, to make war cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus is there for, for the world, the Evangelion, the Gospel, that has come to man through him. It is within this context that we might appreciate the scandal of the Christian message, which Mark recounts this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came, he records, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this gospel. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 and 14. What then did it mean to be a Christian? Jesus' followers quickly began to explain, as the Apostle Paul recounts in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if, and presumably only if, You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To the Corinthians he wrote, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. And soon the self-proclaimed divine emperors of Rome would hear the children of God declaring together in one voice, Credamus in unum Deum. Patrum omnipotentum, factorum tradli et terra, visibilium omnium et invisibilium. 
we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. Et in unum Dominum, Jesus Christum. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Soon the Roman authorities had to begin dealing with this Christianity. Pliny, a Roman governor, wrote to the emperor Trajan that after interviewing Christians, what he found was a depraved superstition carried to extravagant lengths. Tacitus, a Roman historian, speaks of Christians this way, their originator Christ had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilatus. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital, he disgustingly notes. And then he explains that they are being killed because of their hatred of mankind and their lack of piety born in tremendous controversy. Christianity struggled with the weight of an entire empire, an entire culture, an entire way of life rigged up against them. The book of Acts records the first martyr who died for the Christian faith, Stephen, whose feast has been celebrated traditionally on the 26th of December. The Feast of Stephen, from the Christmas carol, Good King Wenceslas. The seventh chapter of Acts records the time when he was seized by those who would murder him. And as they began to kill him for his testimony, he testified to a unique vision and cried out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man is, of course, another title for Jesus, standing at the right hand of the throne of heaven. His persecutors cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus! Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This strange testimony of the first martyr, who loved those who killed him, and who saw the beatific vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the hope of a life after death, would stir in the imagination of those who saw his death many questions. About a hundred years later, as the Roman persecutions picked up, the stories followed a very similar pattern to that of the biblical Stephen. Polycarp's martyrdom is described in one of the earliest documents of the church. Polycarp was the very aged leader of the church in Smyrna. When he was brought before the stadium, it was reported that he heard something like a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and courageous. And although no one saw the speaker, those of our people who were present, says the reporter, 
heard the voice. Well, he was brought forward. And the proconsul, the Roman judge who was there, having respect for his great age, tried to persuade him to give up Christianity. To be a Christian, that was a big problem in the Roman Empire, not because you had a particular religious view, but because of your exclusivity. If he simply admitted that Caesar was Lord, bowed to him, then things would be okay. And the proconsul says that. Have respect for your age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent. And say away with the atheists, a term used for Christians. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of what the author of the martyrdom of Polycarp calls lawless heathen who were in the stadium. And he motioned toward them with his hand. And then groaning as he looked up to heaven said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Oh, swear the oath, and I'll release you. Just revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For eighty-six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But he continued to insist, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar. If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, Polycarp replied, as you request, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. Eventually, losing his patience, the proconsul said, I have wild beasts, and I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. Polycarp answered, Call for them, for the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us, but it is a noble thing to change from that which is evil. To righteousness. And the proconsul said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, oh, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished for you are ignorant to the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is rightly deserved of the un or rightly reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. With great courage, he then endured his martyrdom. And the author concludes, Such is the story of the blessed Polycarp, although he, together with those from Philadelphia, was the twelfth person martyred in Smyrna. He alone is especially remembered by everyone, so that he is spoken of everywhere, even by the pagans. He proved to be not only a distinguished teacher, but also an outstanding martyr, whose martyrdom all desire to imitate, since it was in accord with the pattern of the gospel of Christ. By his endurance, he defeated the unrighteous magistrate and so received the crown of immortality. Now he rejoices with the apostles and all the righteous and glorifies the almighty God and Father and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls and helmsman of our bodies and shepherd of the universal church throughout the world. Now this is what it meant to be a Christian in the second century. It is not so today. We don't face the same level of violent hostility, at least in Western culture. Of course, this isn't true in other places of the world. Every day today, people are being martyred for their faith throughout the Middle East, throughout massive parts of Africa. We see significant persecution happening in China, and there are great questions about human rights violations going on there. With due acknowledgement for that, it's not the common experience of those likely to be listening to this podcast. Our experience is a little bit of a weaker form of persecution. It is nevertheless real. 
And many Christians today who would ascribe to the fundamental beliefs of Christianity perhaps don't grasp quite how controversial these beliefs truly are. Luke Timothy Johnson writes, I think that the Christian creed enunciates a powerful and provocative understanding of the world, one that ought to scandalize a world that runs on the accepted truths of modernity. By the title modernity, he is speaking of the way our world and its liberal democracy works today. It is a way of looking at the world and a set of values that the justices in Loyola called core national values, and they're expressed in our law. Law is always an exercise in the values and morality of a culture. We often hear the phrase, you can't legislate morality, but that's a total uh, oxymoron, if that's the right phrase. It's an impossibility. All legislation is the legislation of morality. As the Chief Justice or former Chief Justice of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin, said, Morality speaks to our conception of how human beings should behave for their own good and the greater good of society. Through morality, often abetted by the criminal law, society has traditionally found collective answers. It's not a surprise, then, that over the course of the last few years, we've seen, as we've seen a significant shift in culture, we've seen a significant shift in the way the law deals with the Christian faith. The law has a massive authority in an essay written by Chief Justice McLaughlin. She writes, The authority claimed by law touches upon all aspects of human life and citizenship, voting, taxation, mobility, family organization, and public discourse. The rule of law, she writes, leaves no aspect of human experience unaffected by its claim to authority. And this is a counterclaim to the claim of Jesus Christ. For us, there is one God and one Lord. To be a Christian is to be controversial. And yet, significant hope and help can be found in the writings of the church that has gone through this before. For listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. The Martyrdom of Polycarp can be found in the Apostolic Fathers, 3rd edition, edited by Michael W. Holmes. And the views of the Roman authorities can be found in The Christians as the Romans Saw Them by Robert Louis Wilkin. I again reference the first volume of Ancient Christian Doctrine, We Believe in God, edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Oden and published by University Press. When I reference Luke Timothy Johnson, I'm referring to the Creed, What Christians Believe and Why It Matters, published by Doubleday. And the Nicene Creed is readily available online. enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution.